Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. I want to begin this morning with Psalm 137, uh, called in the uh, Holy Bible, the Christian Standard Bible, a lament of the exiles. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. There we hung up our lyres on the poplar trees. For our captors there asked us for songs, and our tormentors for rejoicing. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song on a foreign soil? If I forget thee, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skills. May my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not exalt Jerusalem as my greatest joy. The psalm continues, but I want to end my recitation of it there this morning as an introduction to my conversation with you this morning about the Western Wall and some recent events that have transpired in the land of Israel regarding the Western Wall. And this time, it's not a political conversation, but a religious conversation. Some of you are aware that recently, the uh, Israeli government um, scrapped a compromise to allow pluralistic prayer at the Western Wall holy site in Jerusalem. The government bowed to pressure from ultra-right religious parties in Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition, and the outpouring of anger amongst non-Orthodox Jewish denominations with large followings in North America was extreme. The agreement approved by Israel's cabinet in January of 2016 would have established a new area for worship at the ancient Holy City Shrine, part of the retaining wall of the ancient temple, and a leading Jewish pilgrimage site. And I might add, we were all treated to the site of U.S. President Donald Trump and his family going to the Western Wall during his recent visit to Israel and the Palestinian Authority. And one might remember, if you had seen it, that the president and his family made sure that their visit to the wall were seen as personal religious pilgrimages, not uh, political statements. This deal, which was scrapped, was backed by Judaism and reform and conservative and reconstructionist movement as well as the feminist Jewish group Women of the Wall, which has in recent years become a cause celeb among liberal Jews for practicing egalitarian prayer at the holy site in defiance of Israel's religious and police authority. The compromise was never put into effect. 
frozen by opposition from Israel's ultra-religious establishment for deviating from the orthodox ritual that have prevailed at the Western Wall Plaza for years. Following the decision on Sunday, Israel's government, Mr. Netanyahu's government, suggested that it will seek uh, to reach a new compromise on prayer at the Western Wall. Moshe Gaffney, the leader of Israel's ultra-religious United Torah Judaism Party, hailed the decision. We are happy about this and thank the Holy One, blessed be he, uh, on this great success. On the other hand, Rabbi Galid Kariv, the director of the Israel Movement for Reform and Progressive Judaism, stated, This is a shameful move by the Israeli government. If the state of Israel decides that reform and conservative Jews are second-class Jews, those Jews will know how to react, not clear what he means by that. And Natan Sharansky, a former government minister and a well-known Soviet refusenik of the 80s who helped broker the original compromise as chairman of the Jewish Agency for Israel, called the decision a deep disappointment. A lot of ink and a lot of words have been spilled about the compromise at the Western Wall. And so I want to take a step back before I move forward and talk about the Western Wall and why this is so important to Jews throughout the world, whether we live in Israel or we don't live in Israel. And I think there are six reasons why Jews see the wall as unique. The first is that it is a reminder of the site of the Holy Temple. The Western Wall is a surviving remnant of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which was destroyed by the Romans in 70 CE. At that point in time, the center was the center of the Jewish spiritual world. Many Jews considered it the main conduit for the flow of godliness. When the temple stood, The world was filled with awe of God and appreciation for the genius of the Torah. Jewish tradition teaches that all of creation began in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Mount Moriah, known by Jewish mystics as the Watering Stone. In fact, the name Mount Moriah, actually a play on words. Moriah is the place from which Torah instruction, Horah, goes forth from where fear of heaven, year Ah goes forth, and from where light, Ora, goes forth. And it is here, according to Jewish tradition, on Mount Moriah, the place where the temple was built, that Isaac was bound for sacrifice. And it is here that his son Jacob dreamed of the ladder, ascending to heaven. Although other parts of the temple mount retaining wall remain standing, the western wall is considered the closest spot to the Holy of Holies, the central focus of the temple. The second reason that the wall itself, which as you have seen on television or in pictures, is simply an amalgam of large stones, is that it is the eternal symbol. The sages prophesied, even after the temple's destruction, that the divine presence would never leave the Western Wall and that the wall itself would never be destroyed. 
Jerusalem was destroyed and rebuilt nine times, according to Jewish countings, and through it all, one symbol remained intact, the Western Wall. Mark Twain, the great American humorist, wrote, Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jewish people saw them all and beat them all. All things are mortal, but the Jewish people, all other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of this immortality? I don't want to spend a show on that, but the suggestion is that the existence of the wall from 70 AD, and in fact going back to Solomon a thousand years before the Common Era, is the eternal symbol of the Jewish people's existence. Third, the wall is representation of a place of pilgrimage and tears. In accordance to Jewish tradition, 3,000 years ago, King David purchased Mount Moriah and made Jerusalem his capital. His son Solomon built the Holy Temple according to God's commandments, and the entire Jewish nation gathered together three times a year on the pilgrimage festivals of Sukkot, Passover, and Shavuot. Jerusalem became the focus of the non-Jewish world as well. Ancient maps show Jerusalem as the epicenter of Asia, Europe, and Africa. Non-Jews often were drawn by the magnetic spiritual power brought offerings to the temple. When King Solomon built the temple, he specifically asked God to heed the prayers of non-Jews who come to the temple as reflected in 1 Kings chapter 8. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, this was a house of prayer for all nations. During the 1900-year exile, Jews would travel to Jerusalem at great expense and danger just to have a chance to pray at the wall. In the face of disease, lack of water, and marauding bandits, the Jews refused to abandon Jerusalem. Barred by law or wiped out by crusaders, the Jews always returned to Jerusalem and to the wall. The focus of prayers is the fourth identity of why the wall is so important. Three times a year, for thousands of years, Jews from around the world have directed their prayers towards the east, towards Jerusalem. Kabbalistic mystical tradition says that all prayers from around the world ascend to this spot, from where they ascend to heaven. The ancient Talmud says that if someone is praying outside the land of Israel, he should direct his heart in the direction of Israel. When praying within Israel, direct heart towards Jerusalem. And those in Jerusalem should direct their hearts to the Temple Mount. Throughout the millennium, Jews from far reaches of the globe have turned in prayer towards Jerusalem. At each Jewish wedding, the groom breaks a glass to commemorate the destruction of the Holy Temple. And we close each Passover Seder with the resonating words, as Rabbi Yehuda Halevi poignantly said, and as I read in Psalm 137, I may live in the West, but my heart is in the East, Jerusalem. And the fifth reason that the wall represents such an important notion is that it is the site of Jewish heroism. 
when the first and second temples were destroyed and during the Bar Kokhba revolt. Israel's national heroes fought like lions for every stone of the temple. When the Maccabees defeated the Syrian Greeks, the first thing they did was to purify the temple and light the holy menorah. These examples have served as uh, notions of Jewish bravery ever since. In the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, when the ceasefire lines were drawn, Jerusalem was divided and Jews were once again banished from the Western Wall, permitted only to gaze across the barbed wire from afar. In the Six-Day War of 1967, Israeli paratroopers entered the old city through the Lion's Gate. Har Habayat Biyadenu came the triumphant cry, the Temple Mount is in our hands. Amidst chauffeur blasts, grown men wept and danced at the Western Wall. After 2,000 years, Jerusalem was finally united under Jewish control with free access to all. Therefore, what I've tried to convey to you is the Western Wall is no mere historical asset. It is the Jewish root, the deepest root that any people has. Elsewhere, in other spots, we might grope for meaning. At the Western Wall, we achieve clarity and define who we are as based, as defined as God's eternal people, not to the exclusion of others, but to have our own sense of importance, our own sense of existence. The survival of the people of Israel is God's greatest miracle, and the wall represents that miracle. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the history of the Temple Mount, let me just give you a brief historical um, overview, and then I want to return to where we began with a chat about the main issues. Rome destroyed the Second Temple in 70 CE. Only one outer wall remained standing. The Romans probably would have destroyed that wall as well, but it must have seemed too insignificant to them, for it was not even part of the temple itself, just an outer wall surrounding the Temple Mount. For the Jewish people, however, this remnant of what was the most sacred building in the Jewish world quickly became the holiest spot in Jewish life. The Western Wall was subjected to many indignities. During the more than 1,000 years Jerusalem was under Muslim rule, the Arabs often used the wall as a garage garbage dump so as to humiliate the Jews who visit it. For 19 years, from 1948 to 1967, the wall was under Jordanian rule. And although the Jordanians had signed an armistice agreement in 1949, guaranteeing Jews the right to visit the wall, not one Jew was ever permitted to do so. The custom of inserting written prayers into the Kotel, the wall's cracks, is so widespread that some American Jewish newspapers carry advertisements for services that insert such prayers on behalf of sick Jews. 
again, as you might remember, President Trump and his family inserted uh, notes into the wall. The notes in Hebrew are called petakim. Usually they are prayers for peace. So the wall has a rich history. It's become a symbol of the eternality of the Jewish people. And in fact, it's become a symbol that has united all Jews. But the recent decision by the Israeli government has placed a mechitza, a different kind of wall, between the traditional practitioners of Judaism, which are known as Orthodox, um, who believe in separation of men and women during prayer services and who believe in the separation of women and men during most of life, and those practitioners of Judaism, those adherents of religious Judaism, who yearn for an equity between men and women in religious life. Now, you might ask yourself, how do these religious perspectives enter in to the political realm of the state of Israel, a state founded for the inclusion of all Jewish people and a state in which the Jewish people are to find refuge from a uh, history of anti-Semitism? Well, this goes back to the very founding of the Jewish state. And I'm going to share with you some documents that hopefully will clarify how the Orthodox um, establishment living in the state of Israel and outside the state of Israel has uh, acquired such power. It's not just a political uh, power based on the voting system of the state of Israel, but it's unique to the entire creation of the state of Israel. In 1947, when Israel was struggling to establish itself under the auspices of the UN and remove the mandate status that it had since 1919 under the British, there were the spokespeople for the Jewish people of the world, were known as the Jewish Agency. The Jewish Agency was basically the government and exile. On the eve of the creation of the State of Israel, David Ben-Gurion, the chairman of the... Um, Jewish agency issued a statement. He said, to say in all consciousness that we are fully in favor of a state is difficult as long as there are no guarantees for matters of religion. A Jewish state in Israel which is not run according to the Torah is chulul Hashem among the Jews and Gentiles and a danger to religion. However, just as it is impossible to say with full conscience that we are for a state, we can also say that we are against it without causing chilul Hashem. In this event, they will lay all responsibility on us and blame the Orthodox Jews for upsetting it, making it fail. Now, what that means is David Ben-Gurion understood that there, in order to uh, create a state of Israel, 
there needed to be some accommodation for orthodoxy so that Israel could be both a secular state and have an over uh, tone of Judaism. And so a status quo agreement was reached in 1947, and it read like this. This was from the Jewish agency to the executive committee of a uh, group called Agudat Yisrael. Uh, Agudat Yisrael was a political party created in Latvia after the Second World War and attracted Orthodox Jews throughout Eastern Europe, including Poland, Lithuania, Germany, Slovakia, and Austria. Here's what the Jewish agency wrote. This was just prior to the establishment of the state. As chairman of the agency's administration told you, the Jewish agency or any other entity in the country do not have the jurisdiction to predetermine the constitution of the Jewish state until it will be founded. The country's establishment requires UN approval, which is not possible if freedom of conscience is not guaranteed for all its citizens, and it is clear that there won't be a theocratic state. The Jewish state will also have non-Jewish citizens, Christians and Muslims, and it is obvious that retroactively, equality of rights must be guaranteed for all citizens, and there must be no coercion of discrimination in matters of religion or other matters. This was just before the state was established. We are pleased that you understand that there is no competent body to determine retrospectively the state constitution here referring to the constitution of the state of Israel. And the country will be in certain areas free to determine its constitution and regime according to the will of its citizens. However, the Jewish agency appreciates your requirements, and she knows that these things trouble not only members of the Orthodox community, but many pious Jews in Israel who are in the camp of the Zionists and those not involved in any political party. Therefore, the Jewish agency backs um, your position on the following. Uh, with regard to Shabbat, it is clear that the legal day of rest in the Jewish state will be Shabbos, which means Friday night to Saturday night, while, of course, allowing the members of other religions to rest on their weekly holiday. Kashrut. We agree that all necessary measures should be taken to ensure that every government kitchen which is serving Jews should have only kosher food. Personal status, known in Hebrew as Yishut. All members of the administration appreciate the seriousness of the problem and major difficulties. From the point of view of all the entities that the agency administration represents, every possible will be everything possible will be done to provide the deep needs of the religious to avoid dividing the house into Israel. This continues to be a contentious issue. Seventy years later, education, full autonomy of each educational system will be guaranteed. The government will not violate the religious status and religious conscience of any group of Jews. The state, of course, will determine the minimum obligatory status of Hebrew language, history, science, and will supervise compliance with this minimum. It will give free 
full freedom to every stream to manage education as it sees fit and will stay away from encroaching on their religious conscience. Now, you can hear in that words that the Zionists, secular Zionists, were were balancing a very difficult task. One was to appease a religious constituency to secure their support for a future state. The second was the need to appeal to the international community, committing that a new state of Israel would be democratic and a free nation. And the third was the need to meet the demands of the largely, predominantly secular population. These three constituencies continued and can continue today to be the most formidable issues confronting the Israeli public. How to maintain a Jewish state in the context of different forms of Judaism. How to answer the needs of the diverse communities in the country, which include the extremely religious and the vehemently secular populations. All the while retaining a measure of support by the international community for their notion of a democracy that is still called a Jewish state. Now, you will remember how this played out in Canada nearly uh, 50 or so years ago, maybe 100 years ago, that we called ourselves a democracy, but we were known as a Christian country. Stores closed on Sunday. Sunday was the day of rest for all, even those who did not practice Christianity. And as our population changed, the need for those outward manifestations of Christianity changed. And today, the only uh, reminder of it is the closing of uh, all institutions on Christmas and on uh, New Year's Day. That letter in 1947 set the stage for um, all kinds of decisions which allowed the Orthodox community to have more control over Jewish uh, matters within the state. It allowed there to be control over issues of divorce and marriage, which are in the hands of all religious communities. It allowed them to be responsible for the issues of um, burial. And so attention has emerged, which now has played out within this fight over the Western Wall. Women in Israel and without Israel who see the wall as an extreme statement of Judaism and the commitment to the relationship with God wanted an opportunity to pray at the Western Wall in an egalitarian manner. However, due to the politics, um, that is not happening. Uh, I will keep you informed as this progresses, but I hope that you now have a better understanding of the importance of the wall and the history that has led us to this point where North American Jews are beginning to feel excluded by government policy from Israel as a land for one people. For 
Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and shalom. Shalom, 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 Shalom,